Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. There is this tension between their public role and their private lives. And this has always been the big debate, and this is why the Royal Archives that we pay for it is a private archive and they can choose who they want to come in and look at stuff. A lot of the association with the British royal family brand has to do with its former greatness. So many documents are destroyed without any record being kept. So even stories that go back over 150 years, close to 200 years, are still being suppressed. It's related to Britain's greatness and power in the world. Is this personal material or is it material which in some ways should be made public? Welcome to episode four of The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession, our investigation into 500 years of scandal and cover-up in the most famous family in the world. I'm your host, Jonathan Locke. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the reign of Queen Victoria, Britain's second longest serving monarch and widely recognized as one of its greatest. So Queen Victoria, a very popular figure because number one, she was the first queen after how many kings? A lot of them. And you had this undertone, this running current of feminism. You had women looking at her and getting ideas of, look, there's a queen on the throne. This is someone I can look up to. She is a woman among men telling men how to do things. So this is a woman who was hard-headed, but she was emotional, but she played the game. Prince Albert and Victoria actually started in earnest bargaining of the royal family, meaning, you know, they positioned the monarchy as a very family-based institution. And I think the importance of her position and the actual flourishing times known as the Victorian period, the innovation, the industrial revolution, these were all things that happened on her watch. So of course, it's her glory that's going to be accredited to the era and the age. Victoria reigned from 1837 to 1901, and under her rule, the British Empire reached the zenith of its power, covering over 10 million square miles and holding sway over some 400 million people. 
So, of course, in the Victorian era, 25% of the world's landmass was part of the British Empire. The British Empire at that time was the largest empire in world history, stretching from Canada in the west to Polynesia in the east, and including Australia, India, parts of the Middle East, and big chunks of Africa. And the British Empire at that time, everyone wanted to emulate it. Everyone wanted to be that because it was successful. It was bringing inward mobility to the classes. It was bringing wealth. It was bringing innovation. Following her grandfather George III's victory over Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, Britain had consolidated its position as the uncontested world superpower. And with Victoria's reign coinciding with Britain's leading role in the Industrial Revolution, it meant that while she was on the throne, the relatively tiny North European country had no serious rival to its global dominance. But also at this time, America wasn't so much emergent yet as the number one dominator. It was still very much England rules the waves and Britain and empire and colonialism. And that's what the United States wanted. The United States has really built a lot of its foundings on what was there by the British. So that's why there is that special relationship. And that's why a lot of British kings and queens are so heavily valued in the United States, especially Queen Victoria because she is the one that oversaw all of the intervention that really brought technologies and everything to the United States. I mean, it was a win-win for both countries. But if Victoria was known, and is still remembered, as the upstanding, indomitable, stern matriarch of the British Empire who famously uttered, we are not amused, as we shall see, there was another hidden side to the Queen. There's no doubt that Victoria's image has changed radically. People firstly identified Victoria with empire, with the Industrial Revolution, but also with not being amused, not liking fun, someone who was remembered as a rather dumpy, puritanical figure. And some 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, I mean, that was very much the image that came across. This is the image we have of Queen Victoria, this very severe-looking woman who oversaw Britain's incredible position as the most powerful, most advanced country in the world. You've seen the pictures, always grim-faced, determined-looking. You wouldn't want to mess with her, but at the same time, she doesn't exactly look much fun, and that really wasn't the case at all. There's been somewhat of a, I would say, a radical change in the way Victoria's seen. Firstly, one of the main reasons for this is the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, and that focused on Victoria's. And in focusing on Victoria's, we started learning a bit more about her, especially when she was young, where she was lively, loved sex, was very tempestuous. The story keeps surfacing up and down. It has a life of its own. It is a fascinating story. and We don't believe, the family doesn't believe, and neither do I believe, that there was any sexual relationship between the two. And I think the recognition that she was so human and so lively and that the relationship with Albert was one of the great romances. But yes, also important in our age, which is so sensitive to racial discrimination, that she had personally no colour prejudice at all, unlike her court, and also her relationship, very unusual, this too, with Abdul Karim, known as the Munshi, as well, an Indian who 
became very close to her, as well as with this rather extraordinary relationship with John Brown, which was her salvation. The girl who would become Queen Victoria was born Princess Alexandria Victoria of Kent on May 24, 1819, the daughter of George III's fourth son, Prince Edward. She was not expected to become queen at all, but after her father's three older brothers, including kings George IV and William IV, all died without legitimate children, she succeeded to the throne in 1837 following the death of her uncle William. Here's Jacqueline Roth, executive editor of theroyalobserver.com. Victoria was only fifth in line to the throne when she was born. That's the equivalent of Prince William and Kate's youngest son, Louis, today. And she still was only 18 when William IV died. By all accounts, she'd had a very sheltered, strict upbringing, sharing a bedroom with her mother every night and studying with private tutors every day. By the time of her coronation, however, Victoria had already met the man who was going to be the love of her life. And in 1840, she married him. Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha was a German prince, and also her cousin. Thomas Maysarcher Mills, founder of the British Monarchist Society, and royal commentator Richard Fitzwilliams explain. So when we look at Queen Victoria and we look at Prince Albert, they were so madly in love. So mad. It was the love story, the royal love story of all time. I'm going to say this. We're not prudes. The Victorians certainly weren't prudes. This woman liked sex. She had nine children with Prince Albert, and when she could get him alone, she would. She enjoyed her husband to the full extent of however you would want to think. There is no doubt that her relations with Albert were deeply, deeply close, deeply passionate, deeply tempestuous. He was her rock. He wore himself out in various causes, and the people never really took to him, but he was well-intentioned, to put it mildly. The uptight, we-are-not-amused puritanical queen was anything but when it came to the man she loved. She was besotted. She was enamoured with Albert. She was devoted. And she would make remarks in her diary as to how in love she was with him and how she liked to see him in tight trousers. <laughs> she actually made reference to this. And sometimes her diaries, when she would talk about Prince Albert, were on the cusp of borderline Victorian pornography because she had a very vivid imagination of what she liked with her husband. Victoria and Albert were a genuine love match and had nine children together before his tragic early death in 1861, aged just 42. Opinions differ on the Queen's attitude to parenthood, but it's safe to say that she was not the most affectionate mother in the world. She didn't very much like children at all. Children were a byproduct of what she really liked was sex. And it's well documented that she didn't like children. She didn't even like her own children. I am not an expert on Queen Victoria's children, but there is no doubt at all that she could be a monstrously possessive mother. She made life difficult. Uh, if one of them wanted a particular marriage, would she or would she not approve? There's no doubt that she was extraordinarily interfering. And that characteristic, I think, there's no question that she could be very, very difficult indeed. And I think this is also because her children didn't really know her. 
She didn't take the time to be with her children because she didn't like them. So they were left to be reared by different people with different thoughts as to how things should be. And I think that's the greatest travesty, is that if Victoria would have been open to truly taking her children under her wing and teaching them her love for life and art and everything, they could have understood more about why she acted and behaved the way that she did. Albert's death was devastating to Victoria. Barely into her 40s herself, she would only wear black for the rest of her life and for a long period after withdrew almost completely from public life. When he died in the 1860s, this led to Victoria actually pulling away, ceasing to participate in public life for some years. And this led to a, a crisis because she refused public appearances. The British public nicknamed her the Widow of Windsor, and this is the Victoria we think of now. All in black, her weight increased from what historians now think was likely comfort eating and basically looking pretty miserable. And even in death of Prince Albert, she still loved him very much. She had his arm and hand cast in plaster and slept with that. But appearances can be deceptive. As devastated by Albert's death as she undoubtedly was, the Queen's personality did not wholly change after his passing. According to Thomas Mace Archer Mills, the intelligent, lively woman who so enjoyed the company of her husband still retained some of her earlier passion for life. But Queen Victoria was someone who wanted to enjoy life below her station. She became very bored with royal life. She was one who wanted to have excitement she wanted challenges, she wanted experiences, and being the queen and constantly handled didn't provide that for her. And some of that excitement involved the company of handsome men. We have already heard how during her marriage she and Albert had enjoyed a very full physical relationship. But there was, I do not think, any reason for her to want to have a lover because she was already in that relationship where she was enjoying everything there was to enjoy with the man that she married. So was that simply to end after Albert was gone? So part of having dalliances with servants, but in a very dignified way, was her way of breaking royal protocol and saying, I'm going to live life as queen this way but I'm going to live my private life as Victoria, not Queen Victoria, this way. And I think it was because of how intense her relationship was with Albert that led to such a downward spiral of loneliness that made her take up with these two other gentlemen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Victoria was to live another 40 years after the death of Prince Albert and was to form intense relationships with two other men. Just how intense remains a controversial subject for royal historians today. The first of these rumoured lovers was John Brown, a fishing and hunting servant, or ghillie as they're known, at the Royal Balmoral Castle in Scotland. John Brown was a few years younger than Victoria, and, given his job working outdoors, was obviously a very strong physical man. He had risen to become a close friend to Prince Albert, and shortly before Albert's death, had been promoted to the position of leader of the Queen's Pony, which put him even closer to the Queen. You know, he started out working for Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert. And in ways, he took Prince Albert's place when he died. So when you look at at Queen Victoria, and if you truly know her as a person through the accounts of history and research, you know that she had such a zest and passion for life. That's the type of person she was. So she always felt very lonely after Prince Albert had died. And when she was in Scotland, and away from the eyes of court in her own private realm, there's this man, John Brown, a gilly, and he offered her the opportunity to have part of her life back that would be uninterrupted without the prying eyes of anyone. And of course, when you have a healthy lust for life and a passion of the flesh, and this man is someone who is able to serve and service you to the way that you want to be, of course it's going to be great because you're going to be there for a few months and you're going to go home. But then when you go back next year for a few months, you're going to pick up where you were. So it offered her the abilities to have her private life in private and people wouldn't be able to see what was going on. And it did indeed fall to John Brown to lift her out of what must have been a very, very deep depression the tantalizing questions as to precisely what the real relationship of Victoria and John Brown was, they may well be closer than either the film showed or we know. Why would she look for someone else to have sex with, such as John Brown? And I, for one, am a historian who does truly believe that Queen Victoria did have a full-on affair with John Brown. Nobody knows for sure if the Queen and the Gilly did enjoy a physical relationship, but their unusual closeness was subject to gossip across the country, and Victoria did not disguise the fact they were close. 
as well as awarding him two specially created medals, a painting of the two of them together was exhibited at the Royal Academy. Victoria's book, Leaves from the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands, features Brown in glowing terms throughout, and she also commissioned several statues of him. There were even rumours of a secret marriage. In 2003, the diaries of the Victorian politician Lewis Harcourt were published that claimed one of the Queen's chaplains had made a deathbed confession that he had married Victoria and John Brown. The claims have subsequently been proved pretty flimsy, but part of the reason the rumor persists is that so much information about the Queen's relationship with Brown was destroyed after her death. Those who have attempted to discover this in the Royal Archives have not gone far. Are there papers? Was there perhaps some form of marriage certificate? Is there something secret that we don't know? It's reported that there was an artifact John Brown said she was buried with. There are rumours there might have been some form of ceremony. Is this another example of the firm closing ranks to protect the royal brand? The idea of the ruler of the British Empire having sex with a common man and a servant at that would have been unthinkably scandalous to those pulling the strings behind the throne. And what is certainly true is that in the years following her death, a lot of material in the royal archives was destroyed, and that when Victoria's son Edward VII became king, he removed many of the statues and private memorials she had created for Brown. But members of her family that were able to go through her letters and didn't want it coming out, especially her son, the future king, Edward VII. He was someone who was very prude, and that's, that is below my mother. She would never do that, and I need to destroy any evidence that would actually alert anyone to the truth of the matter. And this is highly contested, but a lot of the information that has now come out from what is left of the royal archives that were not burned by the royal family after her death has outlined just how deep of a relationship she had with this man. With so much vital historical evidence destroyed, it's unlikely we will ever know the full truth about Victoria and John Brown's close friendship. But perhaps ironically for those who sought to discourage their relationship and then hide any evidence of it was the fact that in the years following Albert's death, it was John Brown who proved to be the catalyst to see Victoria return to an active role as Queen. So John Brown wasn't someone who was just a servant for Her Majesty. He was a confidant. He made her laugh. He made her feel alive again. He took her out of her loneliness. And by doing that, people become close. And you do share a, a physical relationship as well as a mental and an emotional one. There certainly is the case that he, a rough, hewn, tough, very outspoken Scottish ghillie, was able somehow to lift Victoria out of being virtually a waxwork. And she was able to resume public life. So this is someone who provided Queen Victoria with the normality associated with a relationship that adults have when they're married. And that's all she wanted back. She wanted to feel that warm touch again. She wanted to feel loved in a way that a man would love her. And that's what she got with John Brown. John Brown died in March 1883, aged 56, after 20 years as the Queen's friend, confidant, 
and perhaps lover, and once again she was bereft. In a letter to the poet Alfred Tennyson, whom she commissioned to compose lines for his tombstone, she wrote, The comfort of my daily life is gone. The void is terrible. The loss is irreparable. John Brown was not to be Victoria's final great relationship, however, nor even her most controversial one. In 1887, she met Abdul Karim. Unfortunately, 18 years after John Brown entered service with Her Majesty, he died. So there wasn't any crossover, and it was a few years in between when Kareem had actually entered into the picture. The British Empire had formally taken control of India in the 1850s, and as part of Victoria's Golden Jubilee celebrations, she decided to celebrate that addition to the empire by selecting two Indian servants to come and work at the palace. Abdul Karim, a married Muslim of just 24 years old, was one of those men. Kareem Abdul was much younger than the Queen, and he was already married, so he was of the Muslim faith. And this is also something which is unfortunate because not him being of the Muslim faith, but just being of a different faith was something that was frowned upon by Victoria's family because she was the head of the English church. Abdul Karim may have been frowned upon by the royal establishment, but the handsome young Muslim caught Victoria's eye in a far more positive manner. Within a matter of weeks, she was taking lessons in Urdu from him, and just a year after coming to London to wait tables for Her Majesty, she promoted him to Munchi, an Indian term for teacher, as well as making him her personal clerk and attendant. As with John Brown, it seemed once again Victoria had found a kindred spirit, with the two spending hours together at the royal residence of Osborne Heights on the Isle of Wight. John Brown's sanctum was Balmoral, but Kareem, Abdul Kareem's ground was Osborne House. And when you go to Osborne House and you see his influence on the Queen, you can tell how enamored and besotted she was with him, not because he was providing her a physical lust for life that she got with John Brown. He enriched her mind. He was teaching her. He showed her the ins and outs of different language of different religion, of a different culture. And when she started to be receptive to that and, and elevate him and rise him to the equals of others in the kingdom, that's when people really started to resent him, especially the Prince of Wales. And this is really a shame because it shows just how not open Victoria's children were to outside influences. As part of our investigations for this podcast, we tracked down Abdul Karim's closest living descendant in India, Javed Mahmood, who spoke to us exclusively about his great-grandfather's relationship with the Queen. My mother was the last surviving member of the Munshi's family in India, and she passed on uh, in 2013. So I'm really the only one who still is the torchbearer of this uh, legacy. And I'm the one who fortunately has all the information. He did come from a, I wouldn't say a fabulous rich background, but by no means were they poor or um, destitute. And why should a man of 24 years old be handpicked by the Viceroy to go and deliver the 
Mohar to the Queen. I mean, there must have been some value or worth to him as a scholar or as a person, as such. You know, otherwise, why was he chosen as such? His father, the Munshi's father, was also a very learned scholar and uh, was what they call a vazir. A vazir is someone who used to write, a writer, like a journalist. And so the Munshi himself was a literate man. I mean, he was literate means he could read and write, you know. And he, of course, improved his English when he was over there. But uh, he was a scholar in Urdu and Persian in India. Javid says that the friendship between the Queen, then well into her 60s, and the young Muslim man would have been controversial to say the least, but showed that Victoria was, especially for the times, remarkably forward-thinking. She definitely was extremely close to the Munshi. Victoria was a woman way ahead of her time. She herself was someone who was totally non-prejudicial and very accepting of all kind of cultures, religions, etc. And it's surprising that such a liberal-thinking woman was symbolic of a time of the UK which was so seeped in racial prejudice and uh, discrimination because she herself I think was an extremely forward-thinking woman as such and that credit has never been given to her I mean the fact that she could accept a brown man as a close confidant of hers and was willing to break all royal protocol for instance uh, she would enter a room with her ungloved hand on his hand as such now, there are certain things that the royal family don't do even today and one is you never do a skin-to-skin -skin contact with a people. You don't shake hands with the royal family unless they wear gloves or something. But she couldn't care less about all that and there were paintings and pictures of them walking in with her hand on, on his hand as such. But just how close were the Queen and her munchie? I think there was definitely a very uh, genuine love and affection between the two, but I don't think that it was that they were having a affair or anything of the sort like that, you know. But of course, that was another angle that has always been written about because that salacious angle is something that sells, you know. The media laps that up. But we don't think that's true. But even if it did happen, I mean, so what? I mean, it was something that was between the two people it was a personal thing mind you he was a young man of 24 and she was i think she wanted must have been in her 60s when he went to her which in today's context is not unheard of you know for elderly women having young lovers also but um i don't think that was so because he had a wife and family and all that she immediately said please bring them over here why it would not have been in her interest to allow the wife and his mother-in-law and her all to, to come over there if, if there was something untoward happening. Victoria not only invited Abdul Karim's family over to England with him, she befriended his wife too. So I really doubt whether there was any hanky-panky going on over there. She was extremely respectful to, to him and his customs and his wife, my great-grandmother. For instance, there was a custom every Christmas, I believe. She, she would invite the Munshi and his wife for tea to the palace. And every Eid, Victoria would go to Karim Lodge, which is a little cottage on the palace grounds, for paying her respects to them on Eid. 
the point i was trying to get at is that when his my great grandmother used to go from her house to the palace victoria respected her she was in the in the parda she used to veil her face and they respected that protocol and uh, she would have sort of silk curtains d- drawn so that the, the ladies uh, privacy could be respected so these are the fine things about the british royal family that they had a tremendous sensitivity to the customs and the ways of the people that they had colonized as such this tea is piping hot get the latest celebrity news first and all day long with hot headlines from the okmagazine.com team from celebrity exclusives to the must-have style and beauty picks to help you live like a star You'll get all the deets on what's hot right now, three times a day. Listen to hot headlines from okmagazine.com, wherever you get your podcasts, or visit us online at okmagazine.com. Do you want to know what joy tastes like? Experience Plant Power CBD, the world's most delicious, organic, high-performing CBD oil. Lab-tested and GMP and hemp strain verified. Plant Power delivers all of the impact you need from your CBD with none of the weird aftertaste or side effects. It's CBD, but for foodies. Try the coconut, pineapple, lemongrass flavor for summer in a bottle or the refreshing mix of mint, rosemary, and lemongrass for a truly timeless flavor. All available at plantpower.io. Plant Power, crafted for a purpose, infused to delight. For Javid, the connection between Queen Victoria and his great-grandfather was one primarily of intellectual and emotional stimulation. I think she genuinely liked him. I mean, because he was a man who was one of the few normal human beings around her. He he, he behaved normally with her. He was not a psychophant. Uh, he, he, he treated her normally as a person. And I think that's what she found extremely attractive about him because... She was just surrounded by courtiers and people who had some sort of agenda or some sort of an interest or some sort of a, uh, opportunities. And here was a man who was totally had nothing to gain from her, but just was genuinely fond of her. And uh, they had a lot of good conversations between them. She was a, definitely an endophile because she loved the foods, the fashion, the, the clothing, the paisley design, the decor and she was very influenced by that and a lot of her rooms in the palace and all were sort of you know done up in that style so obviously the man had a tremendous effect and influence on her because she became very conscious and aware of the indian culture and the indian uh, way of life as such and was always very interested to find out about what what india was all about So I think that was the relationship between the two of them. Inevitably, however, the royal gossips and rumourmongers once again sprang into action. And if the Queen's extraordinary closeness to a Scottish ghillie was considered controversial, then her new obsession, a married Indian Muslim 44 years her junior, was a whole different ballgame altogether. No, where there's smoke, people felt there has to be a fire, right? First of all, he was apparently a young and a very good-looking man. And Victoria kind of like was very proud of him as an ornament, as eye candy. Because he would always be dressed in those magnificent 
uh, robes etc and, and and he would escort her into the ballrooms and he would take her wherever when she went to the south of france so when she went with europe he was always very much part of her entourage after a while there was no hiding her fondness for him or her desire to promote him in fact she wanted to knight him also and uh, of course that they put their foot down and said that that would be too much you know we can't get him knighted also so they gave him some other token award obu or something like that they gave him but i think it was also to preserve the image the brand image of the, how could the queen stoop to being friendly and being intimate with a brown man if victoria was bothered by the gossips she certainly didn't show it and then she did things which were at that time considered very scandalous there would be you know like skin on skin type of a thing and those things were were things that were very scandalous in the victorian court you never touched royalty how dare this man even if she had put her hand on his how dare he you know keep it there he should have he should have taken his hand off you know i think that kind of started the ball rolling and she used to use very endearing words to him you know they used to used to call some squiggy or squidgy or i don't know some sort of endearment terms that they had between the two of them and she told him you know she she said that once i'm not here to protect you who's going to protect you what's going to happen to you she had that concern for him queen victoria died on january 22nd 1901 age 81 Her reign of 63 years and 7 months was longer than that of any previous monarch and has only been surpassed by Queen Elizabeth II. She was succeeded by her son Edward VII and one of his first acts was to get rid of his mother's friend. So definitely uh, her eldest son he resented his mother for preferring the munshi over her own children. There was also I think a basic jealousy a basic antagonism towards him because it's like Hey, this is my mom and she's preferring someone else over me. You know, that's the way the 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 children kind of reacted to it, you know. She kind of substituted what he felt was his position. She substituted the munshi for that, you know. And I think that kind of really rankled him as such. And it is a fact that the last person she asked to see before she passed on was him. So all these things i think uh, arouse a lot of jealousy and a lot of controversy against him edward now king and with the full might of the firm behind him not only removed abdul karim from the royal court he removed him from britain altogether to the other side of the world and the furthest reaches of the empire there was a personal vendetta against him to block him out and completely obliterate him from history as such thereby as soon as she died i mean he was literally deported and sent out from the uk and back to india yes there was that prejudice but also there was a jealousy why did she prefer him to us i mean what what was so great about him you know so there were two factors that two emotions that work over there that only can account for the extreme vendetta that they had and you know sort of like aside from torturing him or Or, or killing him i mean they they humiliated him 
to the maximum extent. The firm was not content with simply getting rid of Abdul. They then set about destroying any evidence the Munshi had ever been so close to the Queen at all. My grandfather, who was there with him, was told to go into the house and bring out all documents pertaining to the relationship, letters, and whatever there was. And they did bonfires, all the documents and all the papers, and burnt it in front of the family to say, hey, this is what your dad's position is over here now. Y'all are no more here. Y'all have been wiped out. The slate is clean. Y'all don't exist anymore. Leave. Fortunately, my great-grandmother was able to salvage a few of the documents, of which the most important was the diary, and was able to bring that back to India with her. Abdul Karim had now not only lost his job, he had lost a friend and a confidant, a woman of remarkable enlightenment who had shown him nothing but respect and kindness. To be so humiliated by her son, the new king, and to be completely powerless to do anything about it was shocking in its heartlessness. The humiliation and the insult was something that I think the Munshi found very difficult to digest. When he came back, I think definitely, I figure it was like an insult that he could not tolerate. First of all, he actually missed. There was a deep attachment he had formed with the queen and uh, he missed her as a person who was very deeply attached to her. And secondly, I think he was very humiliated that here a man who had been raised to such grandeur and such importance had to come back to his hometown almost in disgrace. Everyone knew what had happened. So it was something that he, his humiliation, I think, was something that really was something he, he could not get over. And he died a few years later. They say he was not a very happy man when he came back. He'd become a little depressed and dejected, and then passed on. Edward VII may have disapproved of his mother's relationship with John Brown and Abdul Karim after the death of his father, but his and the firm's systemic attempts to completely obliterate all evidence of these relationships, to effectively rewrite history, goes beyond that of a jealous son embarrassed by his mum's new friends. Because he was of the Muslim faith, a lot of the letters and the first-hand accounts of this relationship between a sovereign and a servant was also burnt the way that the letters and the actual first-hand accounts of the relationship between Victoria and John Brown were as well. And from a historian's point of view, I cringe and my heart hurts that we don't have these first-hand accounts to actually draw the parallels between the Queen's relationships with her three men. And I say three men, one of which was her husband, two of which were confidants, another one of which was a physical lover as well. So that's the travesty of the relationship between Victoria, John Brown and Kareem, because there's so much there that we should know and we should be privy to as historians that was unfortunately destroyed. As far as historians like Thomas Mace Archer Mills are concerned, this cover-up is not only immoral, but tantamount to cultural and historical vandalism. So, historians now, as they're starting to see what is left in the archives, and, and I will be very honest with you, getting into the archives is one, it's like Fort Knox. 
you can't do it unless you're supervised. And some historians have tried three and four years to get into the archives for a shred of evidence. So what we're looking at, this black area of missing information, of first-hand accounts that should be there, by rights should be in the Royal Archive where Queen Victoria is concerned, but they're not. And again, I say it is the travesty that these things were burnt because it would show us the truth and put the speculation to an end as to what exactly the depth of the relationship was with Queen Victoria and these other men. And for Javid Mahmood, the treatment of his great-grandfather is just another example of the firm doing what it has always done, protecting the royal image, the royal brand, above all else. That's exactly what happened. Well, you know, I don't think times have changed too much because even when Diana was showing interest in Dr. Khan of Pakistan or, or Dodi Fayed's son, I mean, even she was like, you know, a lot of it was kind of... The courts are very protective about the image of the royal family as such. There's an unwritten code that they are, you know, and especially things like this where it's shown to be not close to a man who's not British, you know. I mean, things like this, I think they try to hide as much as possible. Javid believes that ultimately the cover-up not only insults the memory of the Munshi and of John Brown before him, but also slurs Queen Victoria herself. But... So far, I think whatever interpretations have been given have always kind of leaned back to the British interpretation of, you know, him being a servant, him being subservient, him being, you know, whatever, whatever. Not too flattering. They seem to delve more on the sexual angle and that he was rather than the fact that, you know, I think they should really concentrate more on the fact that she was such a wonderful forward-thinking woman for her times that uh, she could accept a person like this without any social protocol or without any hierarchy of importance and accept him for him as, as a human being, as a person. I think that in itself speaks wonders about that woman, Victoria. And that, I think, is something that they don't highlight. They kind of try to blot him out and say he was not so important to her or whatever. Next time on The Firm, Blood Lies and Royal Succession, Britain's darkest hour and a traitor on the throne. The rumor was that Hitler's plan was to invade England, you know, the UK, and establish Edward VIII as like a puppet king. He would have handed this country on a plate to Hitler. It would have been Hitler pulling the strings and Edward doing what he would have done to make his people feel that everything is okay. He was actually pro-Nazi, and there was no way that they were the authorities, that the men in the white coats or whatever behind the scenes were going to allow that. The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession is a production of Audology, a division of Empire Media Group. The series is hosted by me, Jonathan Locke. Executive producers are Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin. The series is written by Dominic Utton, reporting by Douglas Montero, mixing and sound design by Sean Kravitz. Please subscribe to The Firm wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, review, and tell your friends.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.